Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Starting Small Music Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McCormick, and today we have a very special guest. We have world-renowned keyboardist Jamie Mahobrak. Jamie is a keyboard player for John Mayer and has been heard on the records of The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Keith Urban, and many more. We're going to get into his story of growing up the son of a session musician in L.A. and what his advice is to aspiring musicians for longevity in the music business. Hope you all enjoy, and we'll see you at the end of the episode. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Starting Small Music Podcast. Today, I have Jamie Mahoborak. How are you doing today, Jamie? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm doing fine. Uh, hanging out. I'm in a hotel in LA, so uh, which is my hometown, so it's kind of weird. But aside from that, I'm doing just fine, and it's not a bad hotel, so no complaints. <laughs> That's great to hear. So yeah. starting uh, from your beginning in music, uh, you grew up in Texas. What were some of your uh, favorite uh, bands you listened to growing up, and uh, who were like some of the first people that you got into music? Well, we moved to Los Angeles when I was three. Oh, so no way. Okay. I only, yeah, so I only remember one single second literally one single second of 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 dallas really where I, when i was a kid yeah you know how you remember things in sort of like photographs almost you don't remember all the movement you just remember a little picture right totally. and i only have one of those from dallas so <laughs> i don't remember dallas at all i do however remember uh walking up to the porch of the first house we moved into uh mm-hmm. in los angeles so my memories really start there so um uh, so the music I listened to growing up, um, there was a lot of music that, uh, uh, my father was a session musician. Um, so I knew that the job existed. That was a big help when there were keyboards around and everything. Um, there was a lot of music played in the house, but, mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of classical music because my brother and my, one, my brother and one of my sisters both studied classical music. So that was always being played. And there was a lot of uh, uh, like jazz and rock music. And I took to rock music, basically. Um, I heard everything else, but electronic music um, and rock music I took to immediately. And there was electronic music in the 70s. And I gravitated towards that heavily. Um, And I took a different route really than the rest of my family as far as what I liked and what I got into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I st- still to this day, I'm usually internally taking a different route than the things I'm working on <laughs> but, uh, musically. Do you think uh, that as far is actually, as what I listen to, you know? Yeah. Do you think that's actually an advantage for you uh, for like the stuff you play now, having so many outside influences and like using those to like bring them into something that's not normally used? Do you think it's actually a positive? The positive, I wouldn't call it uh, an advantage in that um, it's not a competition, but what you bring, uh, yeah, I certainly would see it as something that's brought me good fortune over the years. Yeah, definitely. So how old were you when you you first uh, levitated the piano? Like your family was playing, when did you first put hands on the keys? at a very young age, there was a a synthesizer that I, I already was playing some piano and I'd learned a few songs with, with like chords in the left hand and melodies in the right. But then my uh, father brought home a synthesizer, an ARP pro soloist, wow. and then later on an ARP Odyssey. And I learned on those. And, um, um, and that really changed the way I looked at things. Plus there was an album by a guy named Mort Garson. Mm-hmm. Um, Mort Garson wrote a few hit songs 
uh, at a certain time. And then he started doing these, these synthesizer records. And one of them in particular struck me. And I heard a sound on that record, uh, on this record called Black Mass by Lucifer, yeah. strangely. <laughs> that it's a, it's a really great album. And, and, it, and it has had a re-release, a limited re-release recently mm-hmm. over the last few years. But there was a sound that it was on the first song that was not actually made on, on, on the synthesizer, the big Moog that he was using, but it was a processed sound processed through the Moog. And I wanted to make that sound. Mm-hmm. So it was a processed screaming sound, actually. And I just loved it. And that kind of hooked me into making sound and getting interested in synthesizers and everything. So uh, it, it wasn't until later that I was in a band. That wasn't until I was 15 or so. Thing is, I wanted to be a special effects man. And uh, I was at a movie set watching a TV show being filmed. And I, everybody was eating lunch. And I, I said, I want to be a special effects guy. And there was this guy eating a sandwich at the, on the bench that we were all sitting on. And he goes, you don't want to be a special effects guy. You, you don't get credit for your work. And you got to stay after everybody else is done. And then I thought, thought to myself, oh, I guess I'll just play music then, because that's uh, <laughs> I am already doing that. So I was probably <laughs> nine years old, and that's how I decided to become a musician. I took the path of least resistance, basically. <laughs> but so I, then I worked hard at it, but still. <laughs> right. So you said around 15, you started playing uh, in a band. Uh, were you playing locally in the L.A. area, or were you already doing some like session work at that time? When did you kind of make that leap from doing just live to doing starting to do some session work? Well, the first sessions I did were vocal sessions, and I was probably four or five years old when I did the first vocal session I did. And I did uh, session singing until I was 13, and of course, then my voice went like this, and then that was the end of that, right? (laughs) Um, And then uh, I I did a little bit of programming Mm -hmm. when I was maybe 16 or 17 for some records, meaning that I just brought synthesizers over and made sounds, but then... um, uh, I was playing in bands when I got out of school, um, and I graduated in 83. So by 84, I was already playing in bands around town and I played at one point in six bands at the same time, because wow. all of these bands were, they were not, uh, sorry about the, my phone going off here. Mm-hmm. All of these bands were not playing, uh, every night. Mm-hmm. they were all just trying to get record deals. So I would rehearse and then they would do sort of a showcase at a club somewhere to play a night. Then two weeks later, that band might play again, but they were all broken up. So I didn't have a lot of that. I, I, I didn't have to play every single night with the same band or anything. So I got a lot of experience because those bands were so different from each other. Um, totally. Stylistically, so completely different mm-hmm. that, uh, and that I really learned a lot. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day about this. And the thing is, uh, I remember playing in, in um, like funk bands. I played in the, some ska groups. Uh, I played in sort of new wave-like bands, which was still kind of what was going on in a way. I played in some bands that were kind of goth, gothy, kind of like um, Susie and the Banshees or something like that. Um, I played uh, with some in Los Angeles. There was this kind of dark country music that was being played that a lot of people wanted to call cow punk. I played in some bands like that, um, and uh, 
And then I played in sort of pop bands as well. So I played in all, all these things, never playing covers though. I never played in any cover bands. So, and the band I played with in high school uh, was with, uh, with uh, uh, one of the guys who played in that band was a producer named Rob Cavallo, who I still work with to this day, um, who ended up doing a lot of, lot of stuff. Uh, you, he became a producer and it really worked. Do you remember anyone oh, else that was, that was running around LA that time that was about to pop off? I know that all the rock bands were really headed to LA trying to make it in the club scene back in the 90s. Do you remember kind of seeing or hanging around anybody that really had, went on to have a well, huge career as a band? By the 90s, I was already out. I was already, uh, I was already doing sessions and stuff. But in the gotcha. 80s, um, uh, I definitely remember all, a lot of the bands that were hanging out. And there were all these like hair bands and stuff and, and rock bands. The thing is, uh, I even overlap with that world a little bit because there were bands that wanted someone to play keyboards because they wanted to sound more like the faces or something like that. There were a lot of rock and roll bands amongst uh, uh, these bands that maybe people would might consider sort of hair bands but they weren't you right. know and the strange thing was even though i was kind of a gothy kind of kid who would rather listen to killing joke or something or to listen to those kinds of bands you know, all these english bands um a lot of the times those kind of hair bands the people were more fun to hang out with than the people that were doing the music that i genuinely loved you know totally. so I got along with everybody pretty much. I looked weird and I got into fights because of that too. People didn't like the way I looked on the street. But aside from that, it, it was totally fine. You know, I had a really good time and I had day jobs during that time too. And uh, I got gear by uh, a friend of mine. Um, she, I met her, I met this friend of mine through one of my teachers in high school. And um, she and I started doing projects together. And I would do music for anything that needed music, all kinds of stuff, right? Which included laser shows and things. I did stuff like that. But I also scored a lot of little movies. And she would get the jobs and kind of an engineer and sort of co-produce with me, sort of. Not that those things were things that were produced, but we would collaborate to a degree. And I would buy gear with the budgets from those projects. And I paid my rent uh, from my day jobs. So I was pretty much nonstop. I mean, from more, I would get up late, but if I had, if I, if I could, but I pretty much were, was going at it from morning till late at night, every single day during that period of time, you know? Right. So it paid off for you too. <laughs> the grind, uh, the grind really pays off. It paved your way uh, to the nineties uh, where uh, you were on, you played some on iconic records. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, I saw Bob Dylan, Tina Turner, Bob Seger, all in your discovery. Uh, what are, do you have any like uh, memories specifically from the nineties, like in the studio, like maybe a specific song that sticks out that you really like, can't believe that maybe you even worked with that artist still. Well, <clears throat> um, I do remember, like if you mentioned Bob Dylan, and uh, the one thing I can say about that is that I was definitely at that time still out of my element, you know. Um, I had, um, it was a strange company to be in considering that I really hadn't done that many sessions at that time. I was familiar with the studio. And in fact, I, I remember the studio we were in was one of the studios where well, it was actually the studio where I did my first vocal session when I was like four or five. So I was very familiar with the, with the place, but um, uh, I do remember the band on that. 
being, um, I think it was like Jim Keltner and Kenny Aronoff playing and Don was was playing bass. And he was the reason I was there because uh, he was producing it along with David was. And um, it was Jimmy and Stevie Ray Vaughan playing guitar and David Lindley playing guitar. Oh, wow. So it was a very heavy thing, but I didn't really talk to anyone mm -hmm. uh, the whole time because I was just there doing my thing. I just felt like I was in the kind of company that had been around longer than me. So I just kind of did what I did. Uh, and, and I've always felt kind of out of place on things anyway. So in, in here, you know, mm -hmm. so it was more of the same, that, that feeling continued. There were only a few times where I felt in place and where I actually felt that something was going to have propulsion was going to be special. And I would say that the first time I worked with Trevor Horn on seals stuff in the, in, in, the late 89, 90, you know, all the way, and especially on the first four records, but those first two, I knew something was up. For sure. I knew that was going to succeed. And he had already had success uh, with one song, which I wish I had played on, which was crazy, this song crazy, which I love. But after that, I worked on everything else. I worked on all the, all the, the stuff that was done after that. I wish I worked on crazy because it's one of my favorite things that he did. But um, um I'll tell you this much, I knew that those were going to be good albums. Sure. And it was the first time where I was given full free reign um, and was able and was able to fully just be completely creative um, and do exactly what I wanted to do. And I usually don't get that on sessions, especially tracking dates. It's very different, very different vibe. Did you get you know. the same feeling uh, when you first met John uh, in the early 2000s? And I mean, because you've worked on his projects from the very beginning. Uh, did you have that same feeling like this is going to work, like our vibe is the same? Um, I didn't know. Uh, I started with him on the third record because he had one album, then he had Room for Squares, and then he had, uh, you know, and the, the first album I don't know anything about. I believe that Heavier Things was his third yeah it's either his third or his second you know but i started on that album and that album was kind of sparse you know open sounding mm -hmm. very open and um and very selective and orchestrated but once again to use the word in a very sparse way so i didn't feel uh a free flow and creativity so much as how do we arrange this? How can I contribute to that? And uh, also John has very specific ideas um, about what he wants at certain times. He'll let you flow if you want, if you insist on that, or if you say, yeah, I have something, of course you can do, try it. But um, he's also very specific and that existed even then. And that was in the early 2000s, 2002 or something like that. I remember the shadow of 9-11 was still hanging over New York at that time a little bit. Not all the way. It wasn't casting the darkest shadow, but it def definitely changed the tone. So I still felt that a little bit. So I know it was, I think it was 2002 around when that was going on. Um, yeah. So I didn't quite feel the same free-flowing creativity, but there's a reason for that, you know, and it's a good one. It's not a bad thing. Totally. And I mean, you no. kept the relationship going uh, with them now for over probably 20 years. And you guys are about to kick off the Sob Rock tour next week. You guys had a promo yeah. show this past week. So what have rehearsals been like uh, with the band? Uh, how's the lineup doing? And what can fans expect uh, this year, kind of seeing you guys on the road? Um, I'd say uh, the rehearsals were quick. 
because we had a limited time to do it. Uh, mainly, I think, because John was playing with the dead, doing that. And uh, then when we started up, it went pretty fast. The, some of the arrangements are different. Um, it's def There's definitely a, a different lineup, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, there's two keyboard players, which is really fun. And then um, there's a different drummer. And um, um, it is a different sound. Uh, you'll hear some differences if you've seen the band before, for sure. And we never play the songs the same way twice. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few, but a lot of the times we're breaking it up. You totally. Know? Total uh, jam we, band. Yeah. It, it kind of is, yeah. Except yeah. we, we, the parameters are a little more clearly defined, but we're not playing the same thing. I'm never, um, most of the songs, uh, the majority of them, I'm not playing the same thing ever. Gotcha. You know, and that's, that, that's more than half of the new songs and all of the, the old songs i'm never playing it the same way ever so is the new record you know. pretty fun for you to play because it's kind of coming back to your roots with how uh, heavily influenced Sabrock is with 80 synthesizers and like just i yeah. mean it sounds like a straight from the 80s it has to be a fun record for you to be playing on on the road it, it is and i'll tell you why because there's a cleanliness that sometimes happens with a band of this caliber mm -hmm. um that sounds like an album and that's oh. a great feeling yeah, that really sounds amazing when you're wearing in-ears and the mix is the right way. Uh, I'm never sure exactly what the audience is hearing. So, um, but I know what I'm hearing sounds great. And I'm just absorbing that. Now, do you guys yeah. have like a set set for every night? Or like, do you have a stage mic where like John might say like, you know what, I'm feeling this one, but we're doing this one on the fly? Uh, both have happened. Um, and on the last tour that we did, the, the shows were three hours long and there was something nearing 60 songs. Um, this is, and we never played the same set twice. Uh, and I know we're doing multiple nights, so the set will definitely be different each night. Um, this time we're playing a little, we're playing less than that by a little bit, but we'll probably add some. And there's still going to be a different set every night. I don't think we're going to stick to the same one. I don't know that for sure, actually but we didn't do that last tour at all. We never did it. In fact, I think one night we might've even tried alphabetical for a little while. See what that was like. <laughs> Just for fun. <laughs> you... Yeah, I think he let the audience know. I don't think he would do that without letting the audience know. Maybe we didn't do that. Maybe I'm making that up. <laughs> now, uh, from being on the road for so long now, do you still get the same rush before you head on stage? The same rush energy? Um, I kind of always do the opposite. I kind of go downwards a little bit you know um and i get i feel detached by yeah. a little bit emotionally psychologically before i go on and then i always do better if i just think of the music itself um because uh people are there to see john and there's not a lot that i'm going to do that's going to change their perception of the show besides just do what i think is right musically mm -hmm. right so um, I almost treat it like a session gotcha. where I'm playing, you know, like a tracking date. So it's not my job to emote towards the audience in any way. They're not connecting with me in the same way, but they do know if the band is playing right. And that's what I do. So I don't have the same hyped up uh, sensation before I go on stage because of that. Plus what I'm doing isn't as physical as say playing drums where you have to have a certain relationship with your body. Your body is very important when you're playing, mm -hmm. but I'm better off 
feeling like I'm in my living room. Totally. You know? Yeah. And uh, by the way, I'd be a lot more keyed up playing a, a show for less people who are right in front of me than playing for a giant crowd like this. Cause there's a level of detachment mm -hmm. that happens with that. There's no doubt, you know? Yeah. So what is your key to longevity in the music business? Cause I mean, you've had a career that's literally lasted 20 plus, even close to 30 years. Like what's your, what would be your uh, advice to all the young musicians out there to keep a career that long and that successful? Well, I'm going on 35 years now almost. Wow. Um, so it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, I, the one piece of advice that I would give to everybody, there are players and I'm surrounded by them right now <laughs> that have in a weird way, more tech, infinitely more technique than I have, not infinitely, but, but plenty more, you know, mm -hmm. technically. Um, but the two things I think you should have are a sense of rhythm, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a solid sense of rhythm and understanding of that. Uh, how to play behind, how to play ahead, and 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 how to lock in, and how sparse you should be, things like that. And then the other thing is, your ideas are your stock in trade. That is what you are. It's not so much about the playing, even though you have to do that, as your ideas. That's the most important thing. And if you have those, and you remain yourself throughout that, and don't watch YouTube videos and think that you need to emulate those, be yourself, then that will work for you. And you never know how long it's going to last. You know, I feel very lucky that it's lasted as long as it has. And I thought around the turn of the century, uh, it's probably around 2002, there was a feeling in me that where I thought that it would end for some reason. I go, how could this logically go on? I remember having this conversation. I remember who was there. One, I remember talking about this in a studio. Um, maybe even that same darn studio, come to think of it, that's now oh, wow. United Western, where I did that. Yeah, it's really strange that all this, these things happen in these rooms. But um, it was around that time. And I remember the drummer was Abe Laborio Jr. And it was a session that, where it was some record that never saw the light of day. But I remember us all sitting around and talking. And I remember the engineer is now not with us, he's passed on. But I remember us all talking with this feeling like, how can the music business possibly last without you with, you know? And now it's 22 years later or whatever it is. I can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even, I was only a third of the way through. I have no idea. You know? That's awesome. Well, there you have it, my conversation with Jamie Mahobrak. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You guys go see him out right now on the Sob Rock Tour with John Mayer and follow him on Instagram at Jamie Mahoborak. And join us next week on Starting Small Music where I interview Rich Redman, the drummer for Jason Aldean. Follow Starting Small Music on Instagram at Starting Small Music and let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast next. And remember, everyone starts small.